Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. That's hot. Hello there, children. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Monday, May 31st, 2010, and a happy Memorial Day to all of you out there. And welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. Got cancer? Under 40? Sucked, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, Stupid Brain Tumor. In our Survivor Spotlight, Morgan Sobel, young adult brain tumor survivor, graphic designer, visual artist extraordinaire. Bob Gibbs, young adult survivor of brain cancer and the founder, vice president of Miles for Hope. And Akiva Zablocki, young adult brain tumor survivor, trustee the Board of Directors of the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation. As a reminder, this broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, who would like to thank our major sponsors for making this show possible. Sponsors like Spencer's Gifts, Azai, and Lily Oncology. On the web at i2y.com, we help young adults fight cancer every day. And we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it deserves to be. Why? Because our generation deserves better. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun-filled and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's stupid cancer show where remission is not a cure, and survivorship is really all that matters. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, broadcasting live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I am Matthew Zachary. Your host, a 14-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. How apropos. Lisa Bernhardt has the night off once again. We'll be returning next week. We hope she's enjoying her two-week vacation, a well-earned two-week vacation. In studio tonight, our chief cancer anarchist and vice president of grassroots programming, Jack Buffard. Hello, Jack. Hi, Matthew. Welcome back. How was your birthday? You don't get an answer to that. You're old. I am old. Jack will be monitoring. You're a year younger than me, bitch. Jack That's right. Be, Jack will be monitoring our live interactive concurrent chat room, so if you have questions for our guests, please send them his way, and we'll do our best to get them answered, we promise. In studio tonight, our fabulous broadcast production assistant, young adult survivor, Amanda Freeman in the house. Hello. Hi, Amanda. How you doing? I'm sweaty. You're sweat. Yes, we're a little sweaty. We're having an HVAC problem here in the stupid cancer show. A little, a little warm here. Because the rest of the building has the day off, and they turn the air off. That's right. Exactly, exactly. I'd like to welcome some of our in-studio guests tonight. 
returning champion Cora Schumacher from Des Moines, Iowa. I'm at. Are you Dr. Schumacher? Um, yes. Dr. Cora Schumacher. Wait, wait, you're the Dr. Schumacher from the chat room? Oh, no. I don't know what you're talking about, Jack. And uh, newly married Amanda Zablocki, young adult survivor. Do you want to come up and say hello? Here she comes. Hello, Amanda. How you doing? Welcome to the show. You're welcome. Now sit down. Go back to studying for the bar. Yeah, go go back to... Go. She's going to take the bar in a month and work. She looks stressed. I don't know. She looks like she... Well, I don't know, because I thought maybe she had been up all night with twins, but then I found out she was studying for the bar. All right, well... Anyway. Oh, wait, that was you. What, my... Not, you were up all night with twins. I was up all night with twins, yes. My wife's in the chat room, and she just said that. She she launched the chat room and started iTunes at the same time. We was hearing ABBA instead of Tears for Fears. So I guess if that's a small testament to the... Uh, anyone that's a parent will be making fun of us because they know that like we're in the throes of just being brand-new parents and not sleeping at this point. So, um, Matt, I know exactly what you're going through because... My cat walked on me at like 3 in the morning and woke me up last night. Man, you are my therapist. <laughs> I know exactly what you're going through. I can only imagine. <laughs> Jen said her brain is mush. Yeah, my brain is mush, too. She's getting less sleep than I am. But, yes, my twins turned one month old yesterday. and uh, I'm sorry, one month old on Saturday, which was my birthday. I turned 36 when my twins turned one month old. That's actually really awesome. What, that you remembered that my twins turned one month old and not my birthday? Sure. No, just the fact that you celebrated your your 36th birthday and have one-month-old twins. That is true. After everything you went through 14 years ago. That is true, too. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say May has been like my best month to date. Between OMG? Between the birth of my children, the OMG Summit, my birthday... And, uh, you get to hang out with me all and month. having Morgan in the studio tonight. The highlights of National Brain Tumor Awareness Month, if you could believe that. Yes. Thank you, Jack. What's wrong with you tonight? What's wrong with me? Yes. Um, nothing. I might have a little... Uh, I, I might be fatigued from my weekend as well, but it has nothing to do with twins. And uh, I, I'm to understand that you had a typical booth weekend uh I had a typical Booth May weekend where I saw Dave Matthews Band on Friday and Saturday and then went to a Yankee game yesterday and went to the parade and a picnic today. Yeah, that's a Booth weekend. Yeah. So, uh, any case, um, what else do you have on your plate? Because um, well, actually, I have Matt, a couple of things on the news, but you have things to talk about. Yeah, I actually wanted to show you something. Um, you know how we had Team Stupid Cancer for the New York City Half Marathon? Yes. Well, I got my official certificate in the mail the other day. With my official time saying, Jack Buffard for completing the 2010 New York City Half Marathon with the official time of 2 hours, 53 minutes, and 28 seconds. And it breaks down your, it breaks down your 10K time, your 20K time, your average pace per mile, mine which was 13 minutes and 14 seconds, which I'm very proud of. And my overall place was 11,446 out of 11,597, which means, <laughs> hold on a second, this is my turn to shine, okay? Okay. I beat 151 other people. 
Out of the 11,597, I'd be 151. The next line was my place by gender. Did, were they all in wheelchairs? No, but remember the two guys I pointed out to you, the Mr. Magoo guy and then the little person that I beat? <laughs> so, because, remember in the last mile I was coming That's up on them? That's so terrible, man. That's so bad. And I said, I can't lose to Mr. Magoo, and every time he passed me, I ran harder. <laughs> but So the last line of my official certificate that's sort of signed by Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Sort of signed. Uh, placed by gender. I came in 5,457... <laughs> out of 5,485, <laughs> which means I beat 28 other men. <laughs> oh, I thought I was in charge of sound clips tonight. So, I'm just impressed. Like, I don't care that I only beat out 28 other guys and 151 other people total. I'm just pleased that I didn't come in last and I didn't have to jump on the short bus to finish the race. <laughs> So if there's somewhere we can hang this, I'm going to uh, stare at it forever. All right, that's pretty fantastic. That with your stinky T-shirt over there on the wall. Yes, and that was my uh, team stupid cancer moment of glory from uh, March 21st. Well, we have to. I know we did the OMG Summit recap uh, last Monday, but I think it's it's uh, appropriate and suitable to just talk about what has happened in the last week. In that we've managed to put together nearly 500 pictures that people took and sent in. Um, and uh, I believe the, the website for that is um, bit.ly. It's bit.ly forward slash omg2010. You want to type that in there? bit.ly. Okay, omg.lef. <laughs> Wait, hold on. What's bit.ly forward slash omg2010. How do you spell omg? Yes, exactly. But uh, literally, like, we've been getting so much feedback already from people about how they enjoyed it, what, how meaningful it was to be in a room of 300 people that looked like them. Yeah, and uh, we got the final stats with how many people actually logged into the webcast and watched <clears throat> it live. Yeah, we, overall we had 560 people register from six countries and 40 states. A little less than 300 actually came to the event, which is fine. We had over 200 people at the cocktail party the night before. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, I think John told us that they were close to a little over, either close to or a little over 700 people that watched it was, live. It was on the, the high end of 700 or something. It was, right? it was like over the um, over the live stream, which was incredibly impressive that we had like more than twice the people who were there watching right. live on the web. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people that wanted to be there that couldn't, and you know, based on that, were able to watch it from the comfort of their bed or their hospital room or whatever, wherever they were. No, it was great too because um, and and most people we've gotten. I think over nearly 500 views on YouTube of the the documentary 10 minute documentary short. Yeah. And uh I redid the website where it links right to the 1 minute sizzle and then you can click to it to get to the 10 minute and uh we're crazy proud of that. And what we're going to be doing uh for those of you out there that either didn't see it or want to share it, we're going to be um reproducing the entire thing on YouTube. Uh, with some edits, and we're going to clean it up a little bit in post-production, make it a little smoother. You're going to airbrush my uh, my face? We're going to airbrush. Actually, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take out the part where I thanked you. Oh, and put, like, the censored bar over me like they did on Mohammed on yeah, South Park. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what's going to happen. In opposite world. Yeah. But the buzz is building for next year's OMG already. OMG 2011 is already being con- con- conversed about. That's not a word or a phrase. I just said it. You made up a word? I made up and, a word. And entered it to the vernacular, like the booth life as one word? Yes, and exactly. Cancerversary? Crunktacular. Right. Cancer teenies? Cancer teenies, exactly. Speaking of cancer teenies. What? 
Next Thursday. Yes, yes. Next Thursday is the fourth annual Stupid Cancer Ungala right here in New York City. Do I have to wear a bow tie? Uh, only if it spins. Are there ice sculptures? <laughs> there will be no ice sculptures and no black ties. Anyone that's coming. Oh, this is an ungala. It's an ungala. That's right. The ungala. It's fantastic. Yeah. Ann Kramer's telling me that what I just said was actually a word. I didn't make it up. So I, I redact. Well, Ann Kramer knows everything. She does. And meeting Ann Kramer at the OMG Summit last week was a transformative moment in the history of the young adult cancer movement. Yes. And I got a picture of myself rubbing her bald head. While she's wearing a T-shirt that said, my boyfriend loves my bald head. There you go. You are the ladies' man. I am. Fantastic. Well, let, let's get to I the Ungala in a minute. I want to bring out our, our Survivor Spotlight tonight because she is a very, very important person. Should I let her out of the basement? <laughs> yeah. Release the gimp. Ew. All righty. Morgan Sobel is a 16-year survivor of ependymoma. Bless you. Which is a gesundheit. It's a tumor of the spine and central nervous system. Uh, because cancer is the gift that keeps on giving, she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer in 2009. Uh, she's currently a senior majoring in graphic design and advertising at the School of Visual Arts. I can attest that she is inordinately talented. Uh, she's also responsible for the Birdie logo, uh, featured on the family-friendly version of the Stupid Cancer wristband. So we owe her a huge debt of gratitude for uh, stopping all the soccer moms from hating us. So please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Morgan Sobel. Hello, my dear. Can you hear me? Yeah, what? just just edge a little closer. Like this? Make love to the mic, dear. Mm. You gotta do it like this. Oh yeah. Ah, fantastic. Nice Alrighty. Barry White. Let's keep the Barry. So you were how old when you were diagnosed with this t- tumor? I was seven, seven and a half. Wow. So that was a long time ago. Yeah. Did you find that being diagnosed at such a young age? Um, Jack, let me see her. You never remember to sit forward in the studio. Corey, you're in charge of making Jack move his seat Dude, forward. She pulled on my choke collar. And it... yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, diagnosed at seven years old, uh, did you have uh, the right kind of support? Were you diagnosed on time? Did doctors just sort of dismiss what you were going through? Can you talk us through that? I actually had a really big problem getting diagnosed because at that time I had my mother had made me go to private school. And um, the school nurse obviously was not a nurse at all. She was a nun. <laughs> okay. So, you know, they know hell all about... Uh, you Did know, they pray the cancer away? Sick at all. <laughs> so, you know, what she would do is take my temperature and I never had a fever. She was like, oh, you have to go back to class. Because, you know, at seven and a half, you're always, like, dying to get out of school because I couldn't, you know, it was just so hard and difficult for me. Um, but after a while, my mom would be, would, she said, you know, there's no way for, like, two months I was doing this. I wasn't just pulling some BS to just try to get out of school. So uh, we went to a lot of different hospitals, Long Island um, Children's Hospital, Um they thought, you know, a lot of people at first misdiagnose um, as an uh, ear infection. And um, obviously wasn't that. Then they thought, um, I believe, meningitis. And they decided to take a CAT scan. And luckily, that night, they were like, look, something's going on. We'll take you in for further testing. And the rest is that. So that arc lasted how many weeks or months? Um, surprisingly, um, not, well, actually, I guess, 
um, from my parents deciding that something needed to be done to actually getting to the heart of the problem probably took about one to two months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 And back then, obviously, this was a long time ago. You are a, uh, you know, 16 years. I'm 15 years. Life was entirely different back then as far as patient care, quality care, drugs, medicine. Yeah. Were you operated on? I had about, through the course of time, I, I had about five operations and a uh, four rounds of chemo and radiation to my head and spine. And obviously back then there really wasn't that much of an emphasis on, you know, long-term effects for pediatrics. Did they discuss with you that there might be, you know, like what might happen to you in 10 years, uh, late, late effects? They really, no, actually no one really discussed with me. And as far as I know, no one discussed with my parents uh, long-term effects. It was only until last year, well, not last year, but when I started seeing my late-term effects, they, I didn't see a late-term effects uh, physician, a doctor, for until maybe three years ago. And then, only then did I know that I was, you know, success, successful to um, osteoporosis and other cancers. And until then, I was like, well, I'm out of the out of the hole now. Everything's fine and dandy. And right. now... You know, since then I had been like I was realized that I had this whole slew of things that I need to watch out for. Um, for a while, I was pre-diabetic. Um, you know, so I really started. I started taking taking care of myself a little bit better, but paying more attention to what I did. Right, sort of like the consequence of cure. Yeah. Is this new lifestyle that you had to unfortunately just discover? On your own, yeah. And then you were diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Yeah. Do they feel that that is sort of a, you know, a, like a side effect or, or a late effect? Um, I've heard uh, most of my doctors seem to think that it is a late effect, especially with people who receive radiation to their um, the neck area. Um, I know one other person. No, I know two other people who had brain tumors who also had thyroid cancer, so I wouldn't doubt it that it has any significance to whether or not it it does, I think, have a big role to play. Yeah, I mean, find me a brain tumor survivor who isn't hyperthyroid or hypothyroid living on Synthroid, which apparently is in short supply at this point in this country. We're running out of Synthroid in this country. I hope not. Which Carol Rosenthal posted on her wall today. Um, But... Yeah, I mean, it, it talks about the gift that keeps on giving. Where are you now? Well, actually, let me go back to this. Where in your life did you start to pick up sort of creative drawing and design and your first computers? And was that in between the diagnoses and something you did as a teenager? And in, how did that come into play in your ability to sort of live your life through all this? Well, I had always been um, an artistic and creative person, I guess, Um and I always knew that I had wanted to maybe take it further into a career. Um, it only kind of furthered my ambition because, you know, after one of my surgeries, my whole right side went numb, and I had to learn to redraw, rewrite with my left hand. So I was like, if I'm going to bother to do this, let's go all the way. Right. I looked into careers for arts, and I was like, let's, 
not kid ourselves, there's probably not a lot of jobs in the fine arts area. Right. And I really like graphic design, and I also like advertising now that I've gotten into the whole problem-solving issue about it. It's, it's, And I feel it's something I enjoy doing, and I might as well, I went through all this crap, I might as well do what I enjoy. Well, you're you're owning your life. Yeah. You're doing it your way. And I can attest to our listeners out there that Morgan is an exceptional graphic designer. As someone who worked in advertising for seven years, you come across a varying diversified array of people with, with, with different skills, and you are incredibly talented. Uh, do you have a website or uh, for your portfolio for people to check out? I do. I have a Behance profile, which is um, behance.net, B-E-H-A-N-C-E.net, forward slash Morgan S99. Behance.com forward slash Morgan S99. Is it .com or .net? I can't remember. That's Jack can figure well, it out. to find out. I just put it in the chat room. Well, let's click and see how that goes. But okay. again, going back to this whole thing, we met many years ago at the very inception of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation. And, you know, here we are three years later, and you have... It is .net. Yeah, you have single-handedly fended off tens of thousands of soccer moms and priests and teachers uh, who were highly opposed to our widely successful, unanticipated widely successful uh, stupid cancer wristbands. Jack, do you want to just tell that really quick B&L story? Yeah, when I was at the uh, the Bare Naked Ladies concert in uh, December in Worcester, Massachusetts, we had a table of stupid cancer stuff, and we were selling bracelets and giving out some of our swag. And this 13-year-old kid comes up to us and is like, how much are those bracelets? And we're like, a dollar. And boom, he takes off, comes back with a dollar. And I said to Mary Asselin, who was working the table with me, that kid just got a dollar from his mom, and she has no idea what it's, uh, what it's, going, what it's for. So he buys the bracelet, takes off. I said, he'll be back. Two minutes later, this woman comes up to us with the bracelet and says, yeah, um, my 13-year-old son just bought this. I said, here you go, and handed her a dollar back. <laughs> I said, we've been expecting you. Right, so we, we had to address the need to create something that was wearable at church, wearable at school, wearable in younger children. And I turned to Morgan, and I said, how would you like to be a genius? And she said, I already am. And I said, all right, how would you like to be a genius for us? And she said, okay. And she designed the Cancer Birdie, which has helped us sell another 10,000 wristbands to people that don't hate us anymore. Including Dr. Schumacher here. Including Dr. Schumacher. Because she would have to turn her finger bracelet inside out right. when she was working. Exactly. And now she has the birdie on. So you have given birth to an entire new modicum of communications for our organization. Awesome. And you get, for that, the uber applause, which is this. So with that said, we're going to keep you in studio, but we're going to get to the news, and uh, we're going to switch places right now. I'm going to bring on hey, Bob in a little bit. Matt, real quick, we yeah. got a question from in the chat room about how, how do people get the birdie bracelet. Oh, loserkids.com. I'm sorry, loserkids.i2y.com. Kenny, L- Kenny Kane kids I2Y.com. No, 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 L-O-S-E-R-K-I-D-S dot I2Y. Dot com, loserkids.i2y.com, and they have been endorsed by Zach Efron for whatever that's worth. So if you're a teen, tween, survivor, uh, work in a school, a church with little kids, uh, it's the alternative to giving cancer the bird. You're giving cancer the birdie. 
Right. And the bird's giving the bird, but you have to look real close. Yeah, but don't let that cat out of the bag. In any case, okay, Morgan, the uh, bird has a deformed wing. Oh, be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. Morgan, thank you so much for being on the spotlight tonight. Stick around. No problem. And uh, you'll be here all night. Try the veal. Morgan, right. I'll be here all night, everybody. So, um, so, Jack, just as far as the news goes, I know Lisa's off tonight, and she's yeah. usually good at, like, seating us with stuff. Um, going back to the Ungala, I do want to mention that um, we are selling angel tickets uh, yes. this year, which are $30, and anyone that buys an angel ticket, that money goes into a giant pool that we are using to offset inviting at least 50 so far inpatient young adult survivors and yep. at, at the local hospitals there. So we're... Granted, we don't know how many are going to come, but the invitations have been sent out to Columbia, to Mount Sinai, to Hackensack, NYU, uh, Beth Israel. Uh, they have dozens and dozens of young adult inpatients who we are allowing to come to this event for free, and it's all thanks to the generosity of people who buy our angel tickets for the Ungala. And we've sold, I can be honest and say, we've made almost $5,000 in angel tickets. Uh, yeah. And the event is on June 10th. It is 10 days away, so... Uh, a small plea to our listenership out there. If you have the chance, visit Ungala, U-N-G-A-L-A, ungala.i2y.com, and uh, consider a $30 angel donation. If you live in the city, it is the hippest night in cancer. We are expecting three to 400 people to come for a great party. Door prizes, raffle prizes, 80 bucks open bar for three hours. You can't beat that anywhere in New York, 30 bucks admission. Yeah, and the other thing is regarding the raffles, if anybody does have like a cool raffle item that they would like to donate, to uh, you know, to generate more more uh, revenue for the event, you can shoot me an email, Jack at i2y dot com, and uh, I'll coordinate getting the item and listing it in uh, you know our event page and everything. And uh, it's going to be a good time. But last year we had like a bunch of sports tickets and restaurant gift certificates and you know fun events and like a, a pocketbook that's worth a lot of money apparently because people carry more than one purse or something. And uh, we had a lot of good stuff. So a lot of money was, was generated for the foundation through the raffle. And uh, if you have something cool that you would like to give us, shoot me an email, and I'll take it off your hands. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Thank you. So I just pulled up this article about the um, thyroid, because obviously many, many cancer patients at any age <clears throat> who go through radiation or chemo are thyroid compromised and live on uh, Synthroid or, or thyroxin. I'm reading this piece here on Carol Rosenthal's website, everythingchangesbook.com, about thyrogen, which is an expensive shot that simulates the experience of being hyperthyroid and allows thyroid cancer patients or those who are thyroid compromised to undergo you know, full body scans and even treatment while still on uh, regular hormones. Uh, Genzyme just announced that a halt on the production of this uh, will now be limited to patients who deem it medically necessary. So that is... Just crapticulous. That's a word I made it's up. It's craptastic. Craptastic. So that's just not good for the young adult community. So you can make us think by emailing. Oh, Dory's going off in the chat room. Yeah. By uh, going to Genzyme.com and sending them an email and letting them know how you feel about this decision and what they can do to ramp up efforts to rectify this inequity. Uh, I am a Synthroid taker. Uh, many, many, many of the ITOA people that I know take Synthroid. And um, what do you planning to play. <laughs> That's awful. That's awful. Oh, fantastic. <sighs> anyway. So anyway, that's what's going on. Um, I'm trying to find any other news here because all I've been doing is like taking care of my kids. 
Um, you look tired, Matthew. I'm very tired. I thought it was birthday um, hangover, but apparently you're no, no, no. Like, don't sleep through the we, night or we, something. We did have good cake. I am 36. Oh, uh, a special thanks to Lindsay Norbeck from Fertile Hope. A great piece in the San Francisco yeah, Gate. that was great. About pre- fertility preservation, helping women. How far we've come since the days when, you know, you were just kind of screwed, blued, and tattooed when you were uh, diagnosed in your fertile years. Um, I think there, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about. I guess, you know what? Was it I know the smoking what, baby on CNN? Yeah. It, there's a two-year-old baby from the, what, the Philippines? Indonesia. Indonesia. Who smokes 20 cigarettes, 50 50 cigarettes a day. And he's obese, How many? too. 40 cigarettes. Sorry. Amanda just That's corrected two packs, me. right? 40 cigarettes a day. A two-year-old baby. And he's obese. And he's obese. And he really loves his cigarettes. Yeah, and it goes to, apparently goes to Sonic and Hardee's and Shoney's and Cracker Barrel. The video is, like, spreading through. <laughs> Those are all in Iowa, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the video is, like, spreading through uh, Facebook. But if you go to CNN.com, it's one of, like, the featured videos on the homepage. Yeah. It's just, so it's, like, it's real because people are like, oh, that's a fake video and so on. But it's real. It's totally real. It's totally real. Um, anyway, one one thing that I did mention at the summit that I just wanted to reinforce is the fact that um, the uh, the new tax law on tanning salons goes into effect fairly soon. And there's a huge backlash from the tanning salon industry, if you would that they're trying to come up with some spin control. And it harkens me to this brief conversation we had last week about salt. The government is now trying once again and failing miserably to force industry to regulate salt in their foods because it contributes to the maladies that plague this country. It's kind of like how they forced through the health care reform law now all fast food companies need to need to, regardless of whether they're in New York or not state law right. anymore, they have to post calories and fat content. What? Does that include my five thousand calorie pizza? That doesn't include your five thousand and twenty calorie pizza. Oh. Yeah. God <laughs> bless you, Jack Ford. But it also now mandates that tanning salons put warnings, like the cigarette warnings, in their stores. But the salt thing is they're trying to get the <laughs> I'm gonna. This will go through really quick, and we'll get to uh, we'll get to Bob. But the anti-salt people are now up against the multi-billion-dollar salt industry, which there is a salt industry, which has a brand new pro-salt campaign featuring Alton Brown from the Food Channel. Alton Brown is is, is like a 30-second. Salt is our friend. Salt is unique. Salt is fan- go to YouTube and Google Alton Brown salt. It's like the most Obviously, talking about marketing and influencing and manipulating people, it's kind of like when the the um, the corn syrup crew came right. in and said, "Corn syrup is what? Oh, nothing." You know. <laughs> anyway, I digress because we live in a country that can't be regulated. So just be your own advocate. Don't be stupid and don't eat like Jack before. Anyway, our next guest. Let's bring it up. Nine thirty. Bob Gibbs has survived brain cancer several times, I think, and has now set his sights on finding better treatments for the same disease that threatened his own life and the life of his son. His organization, Miles for Hope, recently found the ability for people to store tumor tissue just like cord blood. This is a fantastic advancement, and I'm really excited to speak to him about this. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show... Bob Gibbs. Bob. Thanks for having me, guys. How you doing, my friend? 
I'm doing wonderful. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Very, very excited to have you on. This is some fascinating work that you guys are doing, and I'm looking forward to digging down. But first, obviously, this is the show about brain cancer and brain tumors, and interesting um, thing to talk about considering it is the last month of National Brain Tumor Awareness Month, I suppose. Um, talk us through your story briefly, and uh, how were you misdiagnosed? Did they take you seriously? These are all things that we love to just fire up the troops. Well, just a short version, uh, 34 years old, I was vice president of a construction company. I uh, started having quite a few headaches and some visual disturbances. Uh, you know, I kind of attributed that to stress like anyone would, you know, in that, in that position, and they progressively got worse. Uh, to the point I had 13 episodes, uh, we called them back then, in one day, which were actually visual seizures. Uh, at that point in time, my fingers, arms started going numb, and I asked my wife to take me into the hospital, and lo and behold, they found a brain mass. So after multiple tests, uh, they determined that it was uh, brain cancer, and they started to try to weigh up my treatment options. And what was your actual diagnosis? Uh, at that time, it was a uh, grade 2 uh, legodendroglioma. That's the one with a lot of syllables. Yes, quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, what was your treatment at the time? How many years ago was this? Uh, that was six years ago. And what was your treatment? Uh, at that time, I had a 70% resection because where it was located uh, was right in the uh, right occipital, uh, which controls vision, so I opted to you know, try to save as much vision as I could at that time. So after that, for the next year and a half, we kind of went on a wait-and-watch approach because we didn't necessarily at that point, being low-grade, want to try chemo and definitely you know, didn't want to try radiation at that point. Uh, we wanted to really use that as a last resort, you know, given the harmful side effects you know, typically involved with the radiation. So uh, we wait and watched it for a year and a half in a local cancer facility for a year and a half, said everything's stable, congratulations, going to live a long time, when in fact the whole time uh, the tumor was continue, continuing to grow. Oops. Oops. Yeah, that's basically what they said. You know, sometimes we, uh, you know, watch it for a while. We go back and oops. <laughs> that's a hell so, of an oops. That's one of the oopses you don't want to hear in the, in the operating room. No, and the bad thing about it is we talked to, you know, several other patients like, you know, uh, you know, the, you got to be your own advocate. You know, doctors are not perfect, and, you know, a lot of times things are missed. So as far as your, have you have you relapsed or are you doing all right, not good? Uh, I had a second resection in 2008, followed by uh, 11 rounds of Temidar and uh, experimental vaccine out at UCLA, the dendritic cell vaccine. You know, I, I heard about this, the, the vaccines for brain tumors, and I find that extraordinarily uh, uh, optimistic for, for where we can move towards in the future. And, uh, and obviously, and then your son, of course, as if, like, as if it wasn't, you know, crap enough. Exactly. And uh, you're, what was you're that after, about? I, 363 days after I was diagnosed, uh, almost one year to you know my diagnosis date, our oldest son uh, was uh, had a crash uh, while he was riding a dirt bike, and uh, was taken to the hospital unconscious and seizing, and found coincidental find he had a cavernous angioma. Wow, my friend had a cavernous angioma in high school, and he had a seizure, and they put him on these meds for he couldn't drive and he couldn't do much for I don't know about four years I think. Mm-hmm. Wow, and he's he's well now, fortunately. Uh, yeah, he, he had sur- We actually had surgery three days apart out at UCLA, and uh, they were able to go in actually through endoscope with his, cauterize it, pull it out, and uh, no follow-up treatment. He, he's fine now. He actually just got accepted to FSU. So, so you had the family plan at the hospital. Do you get more minutes for it? 
Uh, unfortunately not, but you know we did get Frank with Flyer Miles. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> so you started Miles for Hope. How recently? Uh, it's going on. A, it's a little over a year and a half old, old now. And uh, you know what we do is we fund cutting edge research. You know we will, you know the only research that we will fund is strictly cutting edge. It provides for better quality of life. Do you uh, have so, um? Do you have a, an opinion on basic research versus translational research? And is there any of that in the brain tumor community? You know, uh, with the, with the current state of the economy, thing as you guys have seen, things have really slowed down research-wise. Uh, it looks like it's finally starting to pick back up uh, slightly uh, in regards to the research. But uh, there is a lot of uh, cutting-edge research that we're intrigued with. Uh, you know, a lot of it being mainly vaccine-based, some stem cell research, as well as uh, nanoparticle technology. Uh, that's you know probably three to four years away yet. You know, I, I read something very, very interesting in my, my relationship work with Stand Up to Cancer. Um, the, uh, are you familiar with Herceptin? Yep, I've heard of it. The HER2 gene, which is the marker by which Herceptin is able to inhibit the growth of breast cancer tissues, was originally found in a pediatric neuroblastoma. Hmm. And when I, found, when I heard that, I was blown away. So the fact that they found this, this genetic marker in a childhood brain tumor and have been able to extrapolate it to work for breast cancer. And now, if you believe it or not, they're giving Herceptin to young men with colon cancer because the HER2 gene presents in there as well. Uh, going back to genomics and molecular medicine, do you think we've reached the point where it's not about the body part that gets cancer, but there is more molecular genomic components to that and it's more universally applicable? Well, I absolutely, I absolutely believe that. Now, you know what they're trying, what they're researching now is uh, they're finding in uh, 90% of the GBMs that are tested, uh, Duke was finding at the high concentrations of the CMV, the herpes virus. So, you know, a lot of this stuff, uh, what they're trying to figure out is whether it's, uh, you know, triggered virally or whether it's, uh, you know, the tumor attracting uh, the virus to it. So, so how do you go about raising money? Uh, we, we hold different events across the country. This year we've expanded. Uh, we're in Boston. We're, uh, we're in Denver, Colorado, Phoenix, uh, Clearwater. We've got events uh, going on all over the country, and we've got uh, supporters starting to host, host events, uh, walks, bowling events, uh, you name it, uh, You know whatever we can do to get out there and raise funds. So are you able to disclose how much money you've given away so far? Uh, currently the one project we're funding out at UCLA is a, uh, a vaccine trial that I was on to include low-grade tumors and pediatrics. And currently, right now, uh, there's been $68,000 of that trial funded already. Is that Keith Black? Uh, no, it's uh, actually Linda Leal out there at uh, UCLA. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, um, specifically, you know, what would you like to see? I mean, this is a, a pretty open answer at this point. But in terms of your, your long-term goals, what type of research would you like to see more of to get funded? Well, long-term goals, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily boil down to specific research, uh, Matt, as much as it does, you know, uh, better, you know, treatments that provide for better quality of life. Uh, you know, too many people have called us up, you know, looking for, you know, looking for answers as a last resort. And a lot of the patients that we're actually uh, getting receiving calls from are, you know, mixed, you know, went through multiple rounds of chemotherapy, uh, where, you know, they're not able to, you know, receive any more chemo. They've received their, you know, lifetime maximum dose of radiation. Which is actually what led us to, uh, you know, researching Health Bank and reaching out to Health Bank to be able to, brain, you know, to uh, store not only brain tumor tissue, but uh, any type tumor tissue, you know, be it breast, uh, ovarian, any type of cancer tissue, uh, because what uh, we're trying to uh, do is lead to more personalized treatments for patients. 
Right. So talk talk us through this tissue banking for brain tumors. Has that never been done before? Uh, the only time it's really been done is for research purposes, uh, i.e., uh, you know, somebody has a resection at a, you know, say Duke. Uh, Duke may ret- retain that tumor tissue for their own research for, you know, testing different chemo and radiation combinations, things like that. But the way uh, treatments are leading, not only, you know, for brain cancer, but, you know, other types of cancer is a lot more personalized, uh, you know, and vaccine-based therapy. So one of the challenges was is that, uh, you know, all these facilities were either, uh, one, disposing of the tumor tissue, or two, uh, retaining it for their own purposes, uh, not giving it to the patients. You know, if a patient for, you know, for uh, one reason or another wanted tumor tissue, a uh, good example, uh, over in Israel, a lot of research is going on right now with uh, DC-VAX, uh, with Northwest Biotherapeutics, uh, you know, for brain cancer. And, uh, you know, if, if people have the ability and uh, means to pay for that uh, that trial, you know, we can actually get people over there. But without tumor tissue, you know, they don't qualify for the uh, clinical trials. So, you know, so there's a lot of uh, logistics that were involved in it. And, uh, you know, we reached out to them to come up with a solution because, uh, you know, if patients actually save their tumor tissue, they can go through chemosensitivity testing, which is going to determine which agent works best for their specific tumor or cancer. I mean, switching gears a little bit, um, do you have uh, an opinion or, or something to uh, to uh, contribute with regard to the idea of uh, better early detection for brain tumors? Um, obviously, the majority of people who get brain tumors are sort of the older crowd, but, you know, we have the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation on the show. I'm a pediatric brain tumor survivor, your, your son, of course. Uh, do you feel that enough is being done or anything can be done, in fact, to what I like to call reduce the risk of stage four? Uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things we're looking into, and, you know, it's, it's on our radar. Uh, one of the things we wanted to do, uh, first of all, was come up with, you know, with some more personalized, uh, you know, treatment options, uh, which you know, the tumor bank is going to lead to. And, uh, you know, the second thing was, is, okay, well, how do we approach early detection? Well, the only way to really approach early detection is through MRIs. Right. And, and, you know, until we're, you know, until we grow a little bit more as an organization, uh, you know, or align, you know, with some other organizations, uh, I don't think we could really force the insurance companies into, you know, running, uh, you know, MRIs every five, you know, five or seven years, you know, like they do for, you know, other types of cancer. Right. Plus, there's also the same argument that they use for young women with with breast cancer is that it's unnecessary radiation to the body, you know, to go through. Even though it's magnetic, it's, they, they come up with the same things. It's unnecessary and potentially damaging to get pre-screened for some of these things. But at the same time, it's almost a necessary evil. Absolutely. Um, do you, I guess we're wrapping up real quick, but I, I really wanted to. I'm not going to you know uh uh what I forget the term like sidewind you with this or whatever but there's a lot of research out there um that gets you know um denied and then accredited and then denied again about the use of cellular telephones uh in children and young adults and whether that is a uh predisposition towards increased risk do you, have you read anything on that? Do you have anything to, to, yeah, to yeah, contribute we've to that? For, we've been following it for quite a while, and personal opinion, you know, being vice president of a construction company, I had my, you know, my cell phone was dead by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, you know, this this was over 20 years of cell phone use. Right. 
and you know it just happens to be on the right you know the right side of the brain where I held the phone where the antenna sat so you know my personal opinion definitely you know uh, proven no you know is right. there any way to prove it uh, not without a large study you know where it's a little more controlled than the Interpol study right exactly I know they're doing a a huge study in Sweden about this right now. It's, it's going to go on for 10 years uh, to figure that out. Because in Sweden, they banned cell phones for anyone under the age of 14. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more of a preventative thing uh, than anything else, just to see as a social experiment. But Finland still has it. Um, those Nordic, you know what it is? They don't have any sunlight, so they got to figure out something to do with themselves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we had a question for you in the chat room here uh, from Jamie, which is, um, do, do you happen to know if they now include grade two for the vaccination trials. Uh, that's the trial that we're fixing to open up, and we hope to have that uh, fully funded uh, by the end of 2010, but currently, no. Okay. Okay, well, there's your answer. Uh, um, the, the, the other end of that is there was one study, uh, Jamie, going on uh, University of Pittsburgh with Dr. Okada that uh, he had some low-grade uh, grade two tumor patients enrolled. I think that trial is closed, but you might want to follow up with... Uh, Dr. Okada at uh, University of Pittsburgh. Actually, University of Pittsburgh is actually where the brain tumor. Is that where Deborah Davis? That's is? where Deborah Davis is. She she runs. She used to run the uh, uh, the division of environmental oncology. She wrote a book called The Secret History of the War on Cancer, and she is the originator of the brain tumor cell phone link in this country that ties into the research studies going on in the Nordic areas and Nordic countries in Europe. Right. Um, so that's funny. You mentioned uh, Pittsburgh. Um, I, I guess I have to ask you this question because we're wrapping up here. Has, has this become your life, your full-time job, or do you still, you know, are you employed elsewhere? Uh, I'm not employed. I'm actually disabled. I was born blind in my left eye since birth, and the tumor took half the vision of my right eye. So I'm legally blind. Uh, what I do see is blurry. I'm not able to read real well. So uh, that's what my wife and I do, you know, pretty much full-time now. So Caterpillar equipment out of the equation. Uh, at this time, uh, it's been in everybody's best interest, that yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. The website is miles4hope.org. Um, Bob, you're a champion, you're a survivor. Um, any brain tumor, brain cancer survivor is a friend of mine. Uh, where, where are you based out of? Uh, we're based out of Florida, but, uh, you know, we're one of the fastest growing in the nation right now, and, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, we got events all over the place, so. Well, I hope you get the cold bear bump a little bit from this, and we wish you luck, and, and uh, God bless. Take care of yourself and your son. All right, you guys take care, and thanks for having me. All right, Bob gives everybody from take care, Miles Bob. for Hope. Hey, Matt, speaking of, like, all these brain tumors and stuff. All these brain tumors and stuff? Yeah. Uh, I'm a lymphoma guy. What the hell do I know? That's true. Remember the email that we got? Where the kid said, well, it was a young adult, but he said, I acquired a brain tumor last year. What, like one was sitting on the street it's or like, something? Yeah, it's like, he, like he, he ordered something on eBay and got a brain tumor instead. Fantastic. You don't remember that? <clears throat> um, As vague, opposed to like, being born with the brain tumor? No, I just remember this. It's not a tumor. That we remember. Okay, fantastic. All right, let's bring on our second guest. I'm going to play, uh, I think this is appropriate. This is what's in my head when I wander around the office. <laughs> Akiva Zablocki is an associate at Tower Watson's Health and Group Benefits Consulting Practice and a graduate 
of Columbia University's Mailman, Mailman? Not Mailman, Mailman. <laughs> the Mailman School of Public Health. Akiva is on the board of directors of the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation, where he chairs the Young Professionals Volunteer Group and the Technology Committee. Good old friend of mine, survivor of anaplastic, no, no, um, pilocytic astrocytoma. I, my brain still works, too. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, my friend and yours, the newly engaged, the newly married Akiva Zablocki. Which one is it? Well, first he was engaged. And then he was married. Definitely. In that order. Married now. And I just want to say I love Akiva. I shopped her all the time. What? Oh, that's Ikea. I'm sorry. Shut up. <laughs> we don't... Jack, just go home. I would love to. Okay, good. Get out of here. <laughs> so, all right, let, let's start from scratch here. I've known you, Akiva, several years now. You've been uh, privy to the young adult movement, and you are a brain tumor survivor. Uh, how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was actually 25. But I was diagnosed with a pediatric brain tumor. Uh, my mother said I was very immature, so I think that's why I got a pediatric tumor. Does she feel good for saying that? I think she kind of feels bad about it now. <laughs> yeah, so when I was 25, I was a senior at Columbia at the time, um, and I was diagnosed actually during a visit to Israel. Um, I started seeing double, and I was diagnosed relatively quickly. There weren't a lot of misdiagnoses. I saw double they sent me to an MRI and it was you know the news you have a tumor right, right away right right uh, the big trick was to really try to find a solution because my tumor was inside the brain stem so coming back to New York I think I saw every single doctor here in the city that deals with the brain tumors and pediatric brain tumors and everyone doctors are like rabbis so they all have different opinions yes they do um, but everyone's Everyone definitely said that surgery is out of that, out of the question. It's inside the brainstem. We don't operate on the brainstem. If they do, you wouldn't be in a situation where you would have quality of life. Um, so it really took a t- you know some time. They offered me radiation. I almost did radiation actually. Offered me chemotherapy. Offered me to wait and see. Um, and it wasn't until I found a surgeon out in Arizona who was willing to take the risk and actually perform the, the surgery on, on the brainstem. And how'd that go? You're still here. Well, I'm still here, so I, I think I proved most of those doctors wrong. Um, I think I was very lucky, and I ever had a very good surgeon. I, I went through a rough patch of learning, you know, how to do everything again, like most of us, you know, after brain surgery, learning how to walk, talk, tie your own shoes, bake brownies, all the basics. What kind uh, of brownies? Yeah, chocolate chip bacon brownies, brownies has never been on my list. Don't put walnuts in them, but uh, a yeah. lot of chocolate chips. Nice. Did you bring any tonight? Did I bring any? No, you didn't tell me to bring. We had pizza. You told me you were making pizza. I wasn't making pizza. I was making reservations. He acquired pizza. So you tell me that you are not Papa Jones. <laughs> the only the only thing that I'm good at making is reservations. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, Kimmy, you, you raise a really interesting point, which is in my case as well, where you are in your 20s, but you're diagnosed with a pediatric brain tumor, and that must throw a monkey wrench into lots of different systems that would typically just like to be a cookie cutter off the shelf solution. Right. Right, definitely. Having a, having a benign pediatric brain tumor in probably the worst location possible, toying between waiting in a pediatric neuro-oncologist's office with all the parents with their small children, yes, um, and then going to 
Memorial Sloan Catering and meeting with a neurologist that mostly treats 80-year-olds and 70-year-olds, it was kind of tricky to find uh, a doctor that was actually had the good results for me. I mean, I, I worked with, um, it's now called Hassenfeld at NYU. The doctors that are there were my, my pediatric neuro-oncologist. But I, I always talk about this in my speeches, and clearly you can relate this. Can many young adults who get treated for uh, pediatric tumors, let alone young adults who are now long-term survivors of pediatrics, still have to see pediatric oncologists where you're 21, 22, 23, 24, you walk into this room and there's ducks on the wall, there's clouds on the ceiling, there's squeaky toes all over the place, and you really don't feel like you belong there. And I remember that I was the very first uh, young adult uh, brain tumor patient that um, these doctors saw who was in their 20s. So they're used to talking to parents. They're not used to talking to patients. So did you experience that odd dynamic well, I, I think definitely you see that. I mean, I was lucky enough to have a team with me of uh, siblings that went with me to a lot of my meetings, and my, my, my sister's a doctor and my brother's a lawyer, so coming into rooms as a team really helps throw the doctor a little bit off his regular dynamic. Yes, and, yes, yes. And he has to relate to all of us, you know, especially when you're coming in with printed sheets from, from Google searches and all the different types of treatments that might be out there. Right. Now, one of the things I really admire about you is you have a really, really funny sense of humor. You've been really able to sort of turn this into humor. And tell me, what the hell is Eye Patch Man? So, I went into surgery, 25-year-old uh, senior. I was class president at the time. I, you know, was a strong young man. I came out disabled, hard, I had a hard time hearing. I wear an eye patch. I had a hard time walking, walking with a cane. So creating right away this alter ego for myself, this eye patch man, this character that is kind of a superhero, kind of wears the eye patch, has powers, is able to rally people behind him, really had me personally uh, show that I'm, you know, I'm just the same person. I, I you know I'm just the same Akiva, but... I have a new look, and, you know, people always tell me that I have a badass look, and I'm able to really wear the eye patch in a cool way. I'm actually looking at the pencils now that you have in your office. I stole one from your desk earlier. They say, please don't throw me at the ceiling and leave me there. <laughs> Where did you get these pencils from? Those are from, like, five lifetimes ago of marketing. Okay, so going out to bars in New York, I, I get a lot of drunk flat boys walking over to me and saying, is that a real eye patch? How did you get your eye patch? And so I have a lot of... Tell me the tattoo. Do you say, like, Captain Jack Sparrow is your cousin? Yes. Sometimes that's the answer. Sometimes they get kidnapped by the eye patch, by pirates, and they turn me into one of them. Sometimes the answer is, you know your mother tells you not to throw pencils at the ceiling? Ah. Don't throw pencils at the ceiling. Wow. That's good karma right there. Yeah. Yeah. So the next time some drunk frat boy comes up to you at a bar and asks if that's a real eye patch... You can say yes, and it also doubles as a jock strap if you need to borrow it. You're still not funny. It's not. It's not. It's a pretty small eye patch, Jack. I it don't know what you, well, no, I'm not. I'm not implying that you use it that way. I'm saying, oh, hey, if you need it. Oh God. This, or you could say this looks like. Uh, Where's my fail I mean, button? I mean, the real question is, what is a real eye patch as opposed yeah. to a fake one? I'm always like, am I wearing it? For it's not like boobs where you have to guess if they're real or fake. Exactly. So yeah. basically, eye patch man is your super Grover. 
Yes. Super Grover. <laughs> this is Snuffleupagus. <laughs> but, but it's become No, no, Snuffleupagus become... is imaginary. Grover invented Super Grover. Right. Yes. Right. So, yeah, so it's definitely become an icon. Everyone born uh, before 1990, before, after 1990 has no idea who Super Grover is. They don't know who me and my llama is either. No, not either. <laughs> I tell my story on my blog, and people, I think, really relate to it. And, and people ask me all the time, you know, about situations where doctors, third doctors tell you nothing can be done, and you need a 31st doctor to really actually give you that that answer. Well, that's even part of the Livestrong Manifesto, which is like never accept one opinion. You know, right. if it means getting a second or a third or a fourth. And actually, that's what Chris Carr talks about, too, in her talks. Is like she, one of the things that I really took home from her speeches is that when she was diagnosed, she coined her body like the Save My Ass Incorporated, and doctors were employees that she was interviewing to work for her. And she went through so many of them until she, she found somebody that listened and was able to offer something. And she was dismissive of the people that said, there's nothing we can do. Right. Yeah, my sister's a doctor, so, and my uncle's an oncologist. But my, my brother, the lawyer, is actually the one who found the doctor special out on his own for me by doing Google searches and coming across this. And really his theory is doctors are like Google searches. You need to search a lot. You, need to, you can't follow the first ten results. Sometimes you're looking for something that's in the next 100 results. Exactly. And that's what you need to get to. Buried. And I think, again, going back to your sense of humor, you co-opted a South Park character. Talk about that. Well, so on my first birthday out of uh, surgery, my cousin bought me a book called I Had Brain Surgery, What's Your Excuse? Uh, which was a very funny title and a pretty uh, humorous book written by a woman that also draws comic books and telling her story. But I loved the title and I loved the, the idea of that. So I took a fat, one of those websites that build your own South Park characters, and for some reason they have a character that you could put an eye patch on. Right. And it kind of looks at me. I had spiky hair at the time, black hair. And so I put together this character where I call him Eye Patch Man Jr., actually. Yeah. Um, and he has on his shirt, I had brain surgery, where, uh, what's your excuse? Right. Uh, the first shirt I made, that symbol was on the back, because on the front was my MRI before and after. Ah. Um, this is actually... I that's where I'm wearing the shirt, so it's kind of me wearing the shirt I made. It's kind of a shirt inside a shirt. But what I find <laughs> most interesting about this is not only you, but Eyepatch Man Jr. has their each your own Twitter feeds. Yes. Well, <laughs> we also we, we both have our own Twitter feeds. We both have our own uh, Eyepatch, uh, sorry, Facebook pages. Yes, you and, do. Um, when I was uh, engaged to my lovely wife Amanda, Eyepatch Man Jr. kept hitting on her, and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> Uh, so that's how we got it to work. I see. Yeah. So you are um, on the board of the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation, an organization I I have known since my diagnosis. And um, how did you originally get involved with them? So I started volunteering um, a year after I was diagnosed. Just I got to some volunteer events and I got to meet the people involved. And I was I mean, because being diagnosed with a pediatric brain tumor, I really felt connected to this community. So Stacia, who we both know, offered me to be uh, the head of the Young Professionals Group, which is basically a group of volunteers in the professional world who might not necessarily have a connection to the cancer or brain tumor world, but want to volunteer and give it, you know, interact with the young adult survivors and the kids um, at different events that the foundation organizes. And I've been running that um, group for the past, I think, three and a half years, and Last year, a little bit over a year ago, is when I was asked to join the board, kind of to give 
a new, fresh perspective, a young perspective, somebody who's a young adult survivor themselves, uh, not necessarily most of the board is parents or of, uh, of survivors. So give a, a different perspective um, and somebody who's been connected to a lot of the activities that's been going out with the young, with the young adults. And, and specifically, what is the mission of the Children's Brain? How, how do you guys uh, differentiate, differentiate yourself as compared to something like Miles for Hope or the American Brain Tumor Association? Right. So the mission, uh, the foundation has been around since '88, and the mission is to improve treatment, quality of life, and long-term outlook of children um, with brain or spinal cord tumors. Um, through research, support, education, and advocacy. Um, and the idea is that there are a lot of organizations out there, but we're one of the few that really focus specifically on children, um, brain tumors, and spinal cord tumors. And as you know, the experience of pediatrics is different than the experience of adults. Like, Absolutely. like you mentioned before, you're going there as a kid with your parents. Morgan here went when she was seven and a half years old. The organization gives a lot of support to those parents um, through uh, parent-to-parent mentoring, through support and pack- and packets for the parents, through, um, I think, Morgan, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got to the late effect clinic through CBTF, right? So, again, really informing the young adult survivors and their parents about what's out there. Morgan, tell us a little bit about how you got to the late effect clinic. Um, actually, uh I was at Memorial, and I was only seeing an endocrinologist, and uh, actually, I at CBTF kept saying, you know, you should probably be seeing a late effects doctor right now. I mean, this is, you know, you're going on 20, 21, 22, and so they referred me, actually, to late Right, and we have two full-time social workers that are there, um, answering questions when parents call up when they're newly diagnosed uh, children, um, helping them connect with other parents, helping them connect with the programs that, and the support that is out there um, besides what the doctors might have to offer for them. Right. It, go- it goes back to what I said before, that there's more to the cure than research. You're clearly addressing psychosocial and social issues. You're helping you navigate through a continuum of care Definitely. that's multidimensional. You're doing peer support. Uh, you're building age-appropriate programs around right. them. So obviously you're dealing with pediatric patients. You're dealing with young adults with brain tumors, and you're also dealing with young adults who had tumors when they were children, like Morgan, who are now young adults. Right. How do you assess the different – or actually, I guess the question this way. What types of specific programs do you do that are age-appropriate through the social work? So the social workers with the kids, um, and this is something that I've participated in as with volunteers, we'll organize events. We have a, a big kids cruise at the end of July where we bring a couple hundred kids, their siblings, which is also something that sometimes people forget about. A huge forgotten group, yes. Um, and their parents to a kids cruise that we sell around Manhattan, and there's uh, clowns, balloons, thing, uh, paint, painting, and food, and other different activities. There's also a circus that we have in October where we give a chance for all these diagnosed, not only brain tumor, to come and see a circus and enjoy a day out at the circus. And there are other small events. We also send kids and their families to Camp Sunshine in Maine um, where they go through a week-long uh, session that is specifically for brain tumor um, um, kids, uh, kids with diagnosed with brain tumor and their parents. And we send young adult survivors like Morgan 
who's been to uh, Can't Make a Dream out in Montana, uh, where the young adult survivors go out there and have a week long of programming that is, again, age-specific. And, for example, there's an anecdote. Two of the young adult survivors that went, I think, with Morgan that year um, had been part of CBT for a very long time, but didn't really know each other, and they met there, and they just got engaged uh, a month ago. Wow. Um, which is a bit, you so know, your matchmaker story. service also. Another one bites the dust. Your Ienta patch man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there are programs like that. There's a program going on that we're doing now with young adults, um, survivors, about relationships, about relationships to, par- to your parents, to your siblings, um, social relationships, um, romantic relationships. It's a four or five week session, I believe. And Morgan again, is, you know, goes to them. I'm going to pop over to see how these things are going. And again, it's working. That's working when it's a small group, getting people a support group, yes. having them a chance to talk with a professional social worker, with some volunteers. Um, but it's sort of the evolution of the support group. You're not all in, in like a hospital setting. It's more conducive towards. Uh, like uh, non-threatening, non-clinical social environments that are age-appropriate. Right. Exactly. Right. And and I, I can't help but not mention this, of course, not not just because she's sitting here in the room, but you are an incredible success story for what it means to be a brain tumor survivor or young adult survivor. You just got married. I did. I just got married to Amanda. Um, who I met in my senior year at Columbia. She's actually not a survivor of anything besides uh, a year of, uh, of our marriage, I think. Which it's is, been tough. But she's a co-survivor. <laughs> she's, she's been your she's been left-hand my, woman. She's a cancer co-pilot. Yes. Exactly. And she's been an amazing support to me. She's my pillar um, when it comes to... And I mean, again, like, you, like you, we've discussed, being a survivor of cancer... No matter if you had only, I've only had surgery. I didn't have radiation or chemo, which makes me very lucky. Um, right. But I have, you know, the late effects as well. I have neuropathic pain, which, you know, is something that most doctors don't know how to deal with, and medications don't seem to usually work on that. Right. And, you know, when it's all entirely in your brain and there's no other cause besides the fact that you have a large hole in your brain stem, it's, it's good to have the support like I have at home. Well, you can fill it out. You can fill that space up with, like, circuitry. I asked them to install a USB um, <laughs> cord there. I didn't believe they had the software yet, but I said, let's put the hardware now. Yeah, advance it. The software it. will eventually yeah. come out. Right. Uh, so, Amanda, you met Akiva how many years ago? Um, it was about three years ago. It was their last year in college, and we met through a friend, actually. And, again, I think it's extraordinary when survivors move on and they get their lives back, and they can they can own their experience. Did you have you ever known a young adult survivor until you met him? I can't think of any off the top of my head now. So this was clearly was it shocking? Are you a tolerant person? I'm clearly or now, but I mean, can you talk us through your as a citizen, as a regular young adult, meeting a young adult cancer survivor who has. You know, his own unique experiences. He wears the eye patch. He's got, you know, everyone's got Ajit and Soros and, and, and crap to deal with, but clearly, you know, he's got it. I've got it. We all got it. What was it like for you to, you know, you, I, I, there's no delicate way to put this, but accepting this or loving him for who he is or looking past this stuff? Were there any moments where, like, like wow? Yeah, I mean, when I first met him, he had the eye patch, and I knew he was in the Israeli army. So I assumed that it was an injury. Right. 
And then I found out... Well done, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I found out he had a brain tumor, and he told me his whole story by this second or third date. On the second and date. It's one of those things that you try to hold back and I had no idea. Dude, you doing. got brass balls. <laughs> Akiva can't hold back anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was, I have to say, it was very intimidating. Right. Knowing someone who's been through so much and how it's affected him and he's really inspiring, you know, and yes. it was part of the reason I fell in love with him to begin with. So, but I would say that I, I felt a lot more humbled knowing Right. Him. You and I still do. Which is, yeah, I mean, and it, it's equal sharing, though, because he probably kisses the ground you walk on for, <laughs> you're still here, so there you go. <laughs> it's amazing. And you should, bro. <laughs> I do, I do. Think every day. Um, but speaking about Humboldt, I go to events at CBTF with some of the young adult survivors, and I feel, I'm like, I only had one brain surgery, and I'm, like, complaining about it, but, I mean... They're amazing. They're superheroes. Morgan here had three, five surgeries. Everyone I meet there and had, secondary had, cancer. had yeah. secondary cancer, and they're walking strong, and they're, like you said, you know, they're all the rage, and that, to me, is really amazing. But that also raises an interesting point that Jack experienced at going to a pediatric brain tumor conference, in that, is it really a contest, which it isn't, of course, but how do you deal with, you know, I didn't go through enough. I have survivor guilt as a survivor for other people. Like, I look at myself, you know, with this fact that my insides are all messed up from all the radiation I had. I didn't have chemotherapy. I had invasive brain surgery. lasted eight hours and nearly killed me twice. But is that enough? I'm cognizant. I have most of my skills available to me. I was able to play piano again. I got most of that back. You know, I look at someone like, like you, without not with pity, but like, wow, what you went through. I look at Morgan cancer twice. I look at someone like my friend uh, Leah Shear, who had Hodgkin's and then thyroid. Look at someone like John Filbert, who just went through like his 14th surgery. It's, it's not a contest, but like you said, looking down at the other people, not, not down, like down, down, but looking at down towards the people that are looking up to you. What, what's that like? I think it's, I mean, similar I mean, veterans coming back from anywhere, they always start comparing battle stories and the wars they've been in and, 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 and who did what and when. I think when it comes down to it, really, it's how you deal with it. It's not how much you've dealt with. It's how you deal with it. It's your approach. It's your optimism at the end of the day. Um, that's what, what people look up to. It's you know the ability, it's the ability to be a self-advocate later on that I think what people like to see. I'd like to hear. Which leads me to my last question, because we're all melting in here and we've got to get out of here. Is, is there, it's not really a yes or no question, but is there a stigma between people who had a brain tumor that is benign and people who have had brain cancer, which is malignant? That's actually a good question. Um, I don't know if there's officially a stigma. I know that people with benign tumors, I've seen... And meant people have felt that they need to, dis, you know, distinguish themselves from the brain cancer and say, oh, I didn't really have brain cancer. I had, I had a benign tumor. I, I, I never felt that way personally. I felt I went through all the same doctors. I went through all the same wards. I was a day before radiation, before I canceled it um, and decided to hop on a plane and fly to Arizona. Um and I had complicated brain surgery. So being the actual type of tumor, yes, having a more cancerous tumor would have been more difficult surgery. 
But you see people with benign tumors that have surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, so it's, you know, the same treatment in the end. And I, I do agree with that because yeah. from the perspective of the young adult, your life is upheaved. Your fertility may still come into question. Your cognition may still come into question. Your future employment, your future education, your future ro- romantic uh, relationships may come into question. And that is, regardless of what type of cancer you have, whether it is malignant or benign, your life gets upheaved. You deserve to get that life back and own that. Without a doubt. Yeah. I agree. Well, with that said, uh, we are all completely melting here in the hottest chemo deck broadcast in the history of the show. Today is our actual three-year broadcast anniversary of the Stupid Cancer Show, so I'd like to thank, especially thank all of our listeners out there. We broke 72,000 listeners today and, and growing, and we're, we're very, very excited. Lisa Bernhardt will be back here next week, and uh, so special thanks to Akiva Zablocki and his lovely wife Amanda from the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation. Can't wait to have them back, and uh, so I guess now it's time for our... Uh, our closing sequence. To activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks. That's tonight's show. Happy Memorial Day, because I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Akiva Zablocki, Bob Gibbs, and Morgan Sobel. In our live studio audience, Amanda Zablocki and Cora Schumacher, next week's show on patient advocacy. In our survivor spotlight, another Children's Brain Tumor Foundation graduate, Jason Varunas from I2Y Philadelphia. From the Patient Advocate Foundation, Aaron Marotti, Chief of External Communications, and Mitch Gallant. Dr. Mitch Gallant, the Senior Vice President of Research and Training at the Cancer Support Community. It's going to be a great show, folks. If you missed any of our previous shows, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or search for Stupid Cancer on the iTunes Store. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Stubby, and I wish you all a great week. Go to bed, Dory. Fucker out. It's an open smile on a